Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. The Tapestry Chamber and Death of the Laird's Jock by Walter Scott. Introduction. This is another little story from the keepsake of 1828. It was told to me many years ago by the late Miss Anna Seward, who among other accomplishments that rendered her an amusing inmate in a country house, had that of recounting narratives of this sort with very considerable effect, much greater, indeed, than any one would be apt to guess from the style of her written performances. There are hours and moods when most people are not displeased to listen to such things, and I have heard some of the greatest and wisest of my contemporaries take their share in telling them. August 1831. The Tapestry Chamber. Or, The Lady in the Sack K. The following narrative is given from the pen, so far as memory permits, in the same character in which it was presented to the author's ear, nor has he claimed to further praise, or to be more deeply censured than in proportion to the good or bad judgment which he has employed in selecting his materials, as he has studiously avoided any attempt at ornament which might interfere with the simplicity of the tale. At the same time, it must be admitted that the particular class of stories which turns on the marvelous possesses a stronger influence when told than when committed to print. The volume taken up at noonday, though rehearsing the same incidents, conveys a much more feeble impression than is achieved by the voice of the speaker on a circle of fireside auditors, who hang upon the narrative as the narrator details the minute incidents which serve to give it authenticity and lowers his voice with an affectation of mystery while he approaches the fearful and wonderful part. It was with such advantages that the present writer heard the following events related, more than twenty years since, by the celebrated Miss Seward of Litchfield, who, to her numerous accomplishments, added, in a remarkable degree, the power of narrative in private conversation. In its present form the tale must necessarily lose all the interest which was attached to it by the flexible voice and intelligent features of the gifted narrator. Yet still, read aloud to an undoubting audience by the doubtful light of the closing evening, or in silence by a decaying taper, and amidst the solitude of a half-lighted apartment, it may redeem its character as a good ghost story. Miss Seward always affirmed that she had derived her information from an authentic source although she suppressed the names of the two persons chiefly concerned. I will not avail myself of any particulars I may have since received concerning the localities of the detail, but suffer them to rest under the same general description in which they were first related to me, and for the same reason I will not add to or diminish the narrative by any circumstance, whether more or less material, but simply rehearse, as I heard it, a story of supernatural terror. About the end of the American War when the officers of Lord Cornwallis's army, which surrendered at Yorktown, and others, who had been made prisoners during the impolitic and ill-fated controversy, were returning to their own country, to relate their adventures, and repose themselves after their fatigues, there was amongst them a general officer, to whom Miss S. gave the name of Brown, but merely, as I understood, to save the inconvenience of introducing a nameless agent in the narrative. He was an officer of merit, as well as a gentleman of high consideration for family and attainments. Some business had carried General Brown upon a tour through the western counties, when, in the conclusion of a morning stage, he found himself in the vicinity of a small country town, which presented a scene of uncommon beauty, 
and of a character peculiarly English. The little town, with its stately old church, whose tower bore testimony to the devotion of ages long past, lay amidst pastures and cornfields of small extent, but bounded and divided with hedgerow timber of great age and size. There were few marks of modern improvement. The environs of the place intimated neither the solitude of decay nor the bustle of novelty. The houses were old, but in good repair, and the beautiful little river murmured freely on its way to the left of the town, either restrained by a dam nor bordered by a towing path. Upon a gentle eminence, nearly a mile to the southward of the town, were seen, amongst many venerable oaks and tangled thickets, the turrets of a castle as old as the walls of York and Lancaster, but which seemed to have received important alterations during the age of Elizabeth and her successor, it had not been a place of great size, but whatever accommodation it formerly afforded was, it must be supposed, still to be obtained within its walls. At least, such was the inference which General Brown drew from observing the smoke arise merely from several of the ancient reed and carved chimney stalks. The wall of the park ran alongside of the highway for two or three hundred yards, and through the different points by which the eye found glimpses into the woodland scenery, it seemed to be well stocked. Other points of view opened in succession, now a full one of the front of the old castle, and now a side glimpse at its particular towers, the former rich in all the bizarrery of the Elizabethan school, while the simple and solid strength of other parts of the building seemed to show that they had been raised more for defense than ostentation. Delighted with the partial glimpses which he obtained of the castle through the woods and glades by which this ancient feudal fortress was surrounded, our military traveler was determined to inquire whether it might not deserve a nearer view, and whether it contained family pictures or other objects of curiosity worthy of a stranger's visit, when, leaving the vicinity of the park, he rolled through a clean and well-paved street, and stopped at the door of a well-frequented inn. Before ordering horses, to proceed on his journey, General Brown made inquiries concerning the proprietor of the chateau which had so attracted his admiration, and was equally surprised and pleased at hearing in reply a nobleman named, whom we shall call Lord Woodville. How fortunate! Much of Brown's early recollections, both at school and at college, had been connected with young Woodville, whom, by a few questions, he now ascertained to be the same with the owner of this fair domain. He had been raised to the peerage by the decease of his father a few months before, and, as the general learned from the landlord, the term of mourning being ended, was now taking possession of his paternal estate in the jovial season of Mary, autumn, accompanied by a select party of friends, to enjoy the sports of a country famous for game. This was delightful news to our traveler. Frank Woodville had been Richard Brown's fag at Eton, and his chosen intimate at Christ Church. Their pleasures and their tasks had been the same, and the honest soldier's heart warmed to find his early friend in possession of so delightful a residence, and of an estate, as the landlord assured him with a nod and a wink, fully adequate to maintain and add to his dignity. Nothing was more natural than that the traveler should suspend a journey, which there was nothing to render hurried, to pay a visit to an old friend under such agreeable circumstances. The fresh horses, therefore, had only the brief task of conveying the general's traveling carriage to Woodville Castle. A porter admitted them at a modern Gothic lodge, built in that style to correspond with the castle itself, and at the same time rang a bell to give warning of the approach of visitors. Apparently the sound of the bell had suspended the separation of the company, bent on the various amusements of the morning, for, on entering the court of the chateau, 
several young men were lounging about in their sporting dresses, looking at and criticizing the dogs which the keepers held in readiness to attend their pastime. As General Brown alighted, the young lord came to the gate of the hall, and for an instant gazed, as at a stranger, upon the countenance of his friend, on which war, with its fatigues and its wounds, had made a great alteration. But the uncertainty lasted no longer than till the visitor had spoken, and the hearty greeting which followed was such as can only be exchanged betwixt those who have passed together the merry days of careless boyhood or early youth. If I could have formed a wish, my dear Brown, said Lord Woodville, it would have been to have you here, of all men, upon this occasion, which my friends are good enough to hold as a sort of holiday. Do not think you have been unwatched during the years you have been absent from us. I have traced you through your dangers, your triumphs, your misfortunes, and was delighted to see that, whether in victory or defeat, the name of my old friend was always distinguished with applause. The general made a suitable reply, and congratulated his friend on his new dignities, and the possession of a place and domain so beautiful. Nay, you have seen nothing of it as yet, said Lord Woodville, and I trust you do not mean to leave us till you are better acquainted with it. It is true, I confess, that my present party is pretty large, and the old house, like other places of the kind, does not possess so much accommodation as the extent of the outward walls appears to promise. But we can give you a comfortable old-fashioned room, and I venture to suppose that your campaigns have taught you to be glad of worse quarters. The general shrugged his shoulders and laughed. I presume, he said. The worst apartment in your chateau is considerably superior to the old tobacco cask in which I was fain to take up my night's lodging when I was in the bush, as the Virginians call it, with the light core. There I lay, like Diogenes himself, so delighted with my covering from the elements, that I made a vain attempt to have it rolled on to my next quarters, but my commander for the time would give way to no such luxurious provision, and I took farewell of my beloved cask with tears in my eyes. Well then, since you do not fear your quarters, said Lord Woodville, you will stay with me a week at least. Of guns, dogs, fishing rods, flies, and means of sport by sea and land, we have enough and to spare. You cannot pitch on an amusement, but we will find the means of pursuing it. But if you prefer the gun and pointers, I will go with you myself, and see whether you have mended your shooting since you have been amongst the Indians of the back settlements. The general gladly accepted his friendly host's proposal in all its points. After a morning of manly exercise, the company met at dinner, where it was the delight of Lord Woodville to conduce to the display of the high properties of his recovered friend, so as to recommend him to his guests, most of whom were persons of distinction. He led General Brown to speak of the scenes he had witnessed, and as every word marked alike the brave officer and the sensible man, who retained possession of his cool judgment under the most imminent dangers, the company looked upon the soldier with general respect, as on one who had proved himself possessed of an uncommon portion of personal courage, that attribute of all others of which everybody desires to be thought possessed. The day at Woodville Castle ended as usual in such mansions. The hospitality stopped within the limits of good order. Music, in which the young lord was a proficient, succeeded to the circulation of the bottle. Cards and billiards, for those who preferred such amusements, were in readiness, but the exercise of the morning required early hours, and not long after eleven o'clock the guests began to retire to their several apartments. The young lord himself conducted his friend, General Brown, 
to the chamber destined for him, which answered the description he had given of it, being comfortable, but old-fashioned, the bed was of the massive form used in the end of the seventeenth century, and the curtains of faded silk, heavily trimmed with tarnished gold. But then the sheets, pillows, and blankets looked delightful to the campaigner, when he thought of his mansion the cask. There was an air of gloom in the tapestry hangings, which, with their worn-out graces, curtained the walls of the little chamber, and gently undulated as the autumnal breeze found its way through the ancient lattice window, which pattered and whistled as the air gained entrance. The toilet, too, with its mirror, turbaned after the manner of the beginning of the century, with a coiffure of murray-colored silk, and its hundred strange-shaped boxes, providing for arrangements which had been obsolete for more than fifty years, had an antique, and in so far a melancholy, aspect. But nothing could blaze more brightly and cheerfully than the two large wax candles, or if aught could rival them, it was the flaming, bickering faggots in the chimney, that sent at once their gleam and their warmth through the snug apartment, which, notwithstanding the general antiquity of its appearance, was not wanting in the least convenience that modern habits rendered either necessary or desirable. This is an old-fashioned sleeping apartment, General, said the young lord, but I hope you find nothing that makes you envy your old tobacco cask. I am not particular respecting my lodgings, replied the general. Yet were I to make any choice, I would prefer this chamber by many degrees to the gayer and more modern rooms of your family mansion. Believe me that, when I unite its modern air of comfort with its venerable antiquity, and recollect that it is your lordship's property, I shall feel in better quarters here than if I were in the best hotel London could afford. I trust, I have no doubt, that you will find yourself as comfortable as I wish you, my dear general, said the young nobleman, and once more bidding his guest good night, he shook him by the hand, and withdrew. The general once more looked round him, and internally congratulating himself on his return to peaceful life, the comforts of which were endeared by the recollection of the hardships and dangers he had lately sustained, undressed himself, and prepared for a luxurious night's rest. Here, Contrary to the custom of this species of tale, we leave the general in possession of his apartment until the next morning. The company assembled for breakfast at an early hour, but without the appearance of General Brown, who seemed the guest that Lord Woodville was desirous of honoring above all whom his hospitality had assembled around him. He more than once expressed surprise at the general's absence, and at length sent a servant to make inquiry after him. The man brought back information that General Brown had been walking abroad since an early hour of the morning, in defiance of the weather, which was misty and ungenial. The custom of a soldier, said the young nobleman to his friends. Many of them acquire habitual vigilance, and cannot sleep after the early hour at which their duty usually commands them to be alert. Yet the explanation which Lord Woodville thus offered to the company seemed hardly satisfactory to his own mind and it was in a fit of silence and abstraction that he waited the return of the general. It took place near an hour after the breakfast bell had rung. He looked fatigued and feverish. His hair, the powdering and arrangement of which was at this time one of the most important occupations of a man's whole day, and marked his fashion as much as in the present time the tying of a cravat, or the want of one, was disheveled, uncurled, void of powder, and dank with dew. His clothes were huddled on with a careless negligence, remarkable in a military man, whose real or supposed duties are usually held to include some attention to the toilet, 
and his looks were haggard and ghastly in a peculiar degree. So you have stolen a march upon us this morning, my dear general, said Lord Woodville. Or you have not found your bed so much to your mind as I had hoped, and you seemed to expect. How did you rest last night? Oh, excellently well. Remarkably well. Never better in my life, said General Brown rapidly, and yet with an air of embarrassment which was obvious to his friend. He then hastily swallowed a cup of tea, and neglecting or refusing whatever else was offered, seemed to fall into a fit of abstraction. You will take the gun today, General, said his friend and host, but had to repeat the question twice ere he received the abrupt answer. No, my lord, I am sorry I cannot have the opportunity of spending another day with your lordship. My post-horses are ordered, and will be here directly. All who were present showed surprise, and Lord Woodville immediately replied, Post-horses, my good friend! What can you possibly want with them when you promise to stay with me quietly for at least a week? I believe, said the general, obviously much embarrassed, that I might, in the pleasure of my first meeting with your lordship, have said something about stopping here a few days, but I have since found it altogether impossible. That is very extraordinary, answered the young nobleman. You seemed quite disengaged yesterday, and you cannot have had a summons today— for our post has not come up from the town, and therefore you cannot have received any letters. General Brown, without giving any further explanation, muttered something about indispensable business, and insisted on the absolute necessity of his departure in a manner which silenced all opposition on the part of his host, who saw that his resolution was taken, and forbore all further importunity. At least, however, he said, permit me, my dear Brown, since go you will or must, to show you the view from the terrace, which the mist, that is now rising, will soon display. He threw open a sash window, and stepped down upon the terrace as he spoke. The general followed him mechanically, but seemed little to attend to what his host was saying, as, looking across an extended and rich prospect, he pointed out the different objects worthy of observation. Thus they moved on till Lord Woodville had attained his purpose of drawing his guest entirely apart from the rest of the company when, turning round upon him with an air of great solemnity, he addressed him thus. Richard Brown, my old and very dear friend, we are now alone. Let me conjure you to answer me upon the word of a friend, and the honor of a soldier. How did you in reality rest during last night? Most wretchedly indeed, my lord, answered the general, in the same tone of solemnity. So miserably, that I would not run the risk of such a second night not only for all the lands belonging to this castle, but for all the country which I see from this elevated point of view. This is most extraordinary, said the young lord, as if speaking to himself. Then there must be something in the reports concerning that apartment. Again turning to the general, he said, For God's sake, my dear friend, be candid with me, and let me know the disagreeable particulars which have befallen you under a roof, where, with consent of the owner, you should have met nothing save comfort. The general seemed distressed by this appeal, and paused a moment before he replied. My dear lord, he at length said, what happened to me last night is of a nature so peculiar and so unpleasant that I could hardly bring myself to detail it even to your lordship, were it not that, independent of my wish to gratify any request of yours, I think that sincerity on my part may lead to some explanation about a circumstance equally painful and mysterious. To others, 
the communication I am about to make, might place me in the light of a weak-minded, superstitious fool, who suffered his own imagination to delude and bewilder him. But you have known me in childhood and youth, and will not suspect me of having adopted in manhood the feelings and frailties from which my early years were free. Here he paused, and his friend replied, Do not doubt my perfect confidence in the truth of your communication, however strange it may be, replied Lord Woodville. I know your firmness of disposition too well to suspect you could be made the object of imposition, and am aware that your honor and your friendship will equally deter you from exaggerating whatever you may have witnessed. Well then, said the general, I will proceed with my story as well as I can, relying upon your candor, and yet distinctly feeling that I would rather face a battery than recall to my mind the odious recollections of last night. He paused a second time and then perceiving that Lord Woodville remained silent and in an attitude of attention, he commenced, though not without obvious reluctance, the history of his night's adventures in the tapestry chamber. I undressed and went to bed so soon as your lordship left me yesterday evening, but the wood in the chimney, which nearly fronted my bed, blazed brightly and cheerfully, and aided by a hundred exciting recollections of my childhood and youth, which had been recalled by the unexpected pleasure of meeting your lordship prevented me from falling immediately asleep. I ought, however, to say that these reflections were all of a pleasant and agreeable kind, grounded on a sense of having for a time exchanged the labor, fatigues, and dangers of my profession for the enjoyments of a peaceful life, and the reunion of those friendly and affectionate ties which I had torn asunder at the rude summons of war. While such pleasing reflections were stealing over my mind, and gradually lulling me to slumber, I was suddenly aroused by a sound like that of the rustling of a silken gown and the tapping of a pair of high-heeled shoes, as if a woman were walking in the apartment. Ere I could draw the curtain to see what the matter was, the figure of a little woman passed between the bed and the fire. The back of this form was turned to me, and I could observe, from the shoulders and neck, it was that of an old woman, whose dress was an old-fashioned gown, which I think ladies call a sake, that is, a sort of robe completely loosened the body, but gathered into broad plates upon the neck and shoulders, which fall down to the ground, and terminate in a species of train. I thought the intrusion singular enough, but never harbored for a moment the idea that what I saw was anything more than the mortal form of some old woman about the establishment, who had a fancy to dress like her grandmother, and who, having perhaps, as your lordship mentioned that you were rather straitened for room, been dislodged from her chamber for my accommodation, had forgotten the circumstance, and returned by twelve to her old haunt. Under this persuasion I moved myself in bed and coughed a little, to make the intruder sensible of my being in possession of the premises. She turned slowly round, but gracious heaven! My lord, what a countenance did she display to me! There was no longer any question what she was, or any thought of her being a living being. Upon a face which wore the fixed features of a corpse were imprinted the traces of the vilest and most hideous passions which had animated her while she lived. The body of some atrocious criminal seemed to have been given up from the grave, and the soul restored from the penal fire, in order to form for a space a union with the ancient accomplice of its guilt. I started up in bed, and sat upright, supporting myself on my palms, as I gazed on this horrible specter. The hag made, as it seemed, a single and swift stride to the bed where I lay, and squatted herself down upon it, in precisely the same attitude which I had assumed in the extremity of horror, 
advancing her diabolical countenance within half a yard of mine, with a grin which seemed to intimate the malice and the derision of an incarnate fiend. Here General Brown stopped, and wiped from his brow the cold perspiration with which the recollection of his horrible vision had covered it. My lord, he said, I am no coward, I have been in all the mortal dangers incidental to my profession, and I may truly boast that no man ever knew Richard Brown dishonor the sword he wears, but in these horrible circumstances, under the eyes, and, as it seemed, almost in the grasp of an incarnation of an evil spirit, all firmness forsook me, all manhood melted from me like wax in the furnace, and I felt my hair individually bristle, the current of my lifeblood ceased to flow, and I sank back in a swoon, as very a victim to panic terror as ever was a village girl, or a child of ten years old. How long I lay in this condition I cannot pretend to guess. But I was roused by the castle clock striking one, so loud that it seemed as if it were in the very room. It was some time before I dared open my eyes, lest they should again encounter the horrible spectacle. When, however, I summoned courage to look up, she was no longer visible. My first idea was to pull my bell, wake the servants, and remove to a garret or a hayloft, to be insured against a second visitation. Nay, I will confess the truth that my resolution was altered, not by the shame of exposing myself, but by the fear that, as the bell cord hung by the chimney, I might, in making my way to it, be again crossed by the fiendish hag, who, I figured to myself, might be still lurking about some corner of the apartment. I will not pretend to describe what hot and cold fever fits tormented me for the rest of the night, through broken sleep, weary vigils, and that dubious state which forms the neutral ground between them. A hundred terrible objects appeared to haunt me, but there was the great difference betwixt the vision which I have described, and those which followed, that I knew the last to be deceptions of my own fancy and overexcited nerves. Day at last appeared, and I rose from my bed ill in health and humiliated in mind. I was ashamed of myself as a man and a soldier, and still more so at feeling my own extreme desire to escape from the haunted apartment, which, however, conquered all other considerations, so that, huddling on my clothes with the most careless haste, I made my escape from your lordship's mansion, to seek in the open air some relief to my nervous system, shaken as it was by this horrible recounter with a visitant. For such I must believe her, from the other world. Your lordship has now heard the cause of my discomposure, and of my sudden desire to leave your hospitable castle. In other places I trust we may often meet, but God protect me from ever spending a second night under that roof. Strange as the general's tale was, he spoke with such a deep air of conviction that it cut short all the usual commentaries which are made on such stories. Lord Woodville never once asked him if he was sure he did not dream of the apparition, or suggested any of the possibilities by which it is fashionable to explain supernatural appearances as wild vagaries of the fancy, or deceptions of the optic nerves. On the contrary, he seemed deeply impressed with the truth and reality of what he had heard, and, after a considerable pause, regretted, with much appearance of sincerity, that his early friend should in his house have suffered so severely. I am the more sorry for your pain, my dear Brown, he continued, that it is the unhappy, though most unexpected, result of an experiment of my own. You must know that, for my father and grandfather's time, at least, the apartment which was assigned to you last night had been shut on account of reports that it was disturbed by supernatural sights and noises. When I came, 
a few weeks since, into possession of the estate, I thought the accommodation which the castle afforded for my friends was not extensive enough to permit the inhabitants of the invisible world to retain possession of a comfortable sleeping apartment. I therefore caused the tapestry chamber, as we call it, to be opened, and without destroying its air of antiquity, I had such new articles of furniture placed in it as became the modern times. Yet, as the opinion that the room was haunted very strongly prevailed among the domestics, and was also known in the neighborhood and to many of my friends, I feared some prejudice might be entertained by the first occupant of the tapestried chamber, which might tend to revive the evil report which it had labored under, and so disappoint my purpose of rendering it a useful part, or the house. I must confess, my dear Brown, that your arrival yesterday— agreeable to me for a thousand reasons besides seemed the most favorable opportunity of removing the unpleasant rumors which attached to the room, since your courage was indubitable, and your mind free of any preoccupation on the subject. I could not, therefore, have chosen a more fitting subject for my experiment. Upon my life, said General Brown, somewhat hastily, I am infinitely obliged to your lordship, very particularly indebted indeed. I am likely to remember for some time the consequences of the experiment, as your lordship is pleased to call it. Nay, now you are unjust, my dear friend, said Lord Woodville. You have only to reflect for a single moment, in order to be convinced that I could not augur the possibility of the pain to which you have been so unhappily exposed. I was yesterday morning a complete skeptic on the subject of supernatural appearances. Nay, I am sure that, had I told you what was said about that room, those very reports would have induced you, by your own choice, to select it for your accommodation. It was my misfortune, perhaps my error, but really cannot be termed my fault, that you have been afflicted so strangely. Strangely indeed, said the general, resuming his good temper. And I acknowledge that I have no right to be offended with your lordship for treating me like what I used to think myself, a man of some firmness and courage. But I see my post-horses are arrived and I must not detain your lordship from your amusement. Nay, my old friend, said Lord Woodville, since you cannot stay with us another day, which, indeed, I can no longer urge, give me at least half an hour more. You used to love pictures, and I have a gallery of portraits, some of them by Van Dyck, representing ancestry to whom this property and castle formerly belonged. I think that several of them will strike you as possessing merit. General Brown accepted the invitation, though somewhat unwillingly. It was evident he was not to breathe freely or at ease till he left Woodville Castle far behind him. He could not refuse his friend's invitation, however, and the less so, that he was a little ashamed of the peevishness which he had displayed towards his well-meaning entertainer. The general, therefore, followed Lord Woodville through several rooms into a long gallery hung with pictures, which the latter pointed out to his guests, telling the names— and giving some account of the personages whose portraits presented themselves in progression. General Brown was but little interested in the details which these accounts conveyed to him. They were, indeed, of the kind which are usually found in an old family gallery. Here was a cavalier who had ruined the estate in the royal cause, there a fine lady who had reinstated it by contracting a match with a wealthy roundhead. There hung a gallant who had been in danger for corresponding with the exiled court at St. Germain's, here one who had taken arms for William at the Revolution, and there a third that had thrown his weight alternately into the scale of Whig and Tory. 
while Lord Woodville was cramming these words into his guest's ear. Against the stomach of his sense, they gained the middle of the gallery, when he beheld General Brown suddenly start and assume an attitude of the utmost surprise not unmixed with fear, as his eyes were suddenly caught and riveted by a portrait of an old lady in a sake, the fashionable dress of the end of the seventeenth century. There she is! he exclaimed. There she is, in form and features, though inferior in demoniac expression to the accursed hag who visited me last night. If that be the case, said the young nobleman, there can remain no longer any doubt of the horrible reality of your apparition. That is the picture of a wretched ancestress of mine, of whose crimes a black and fearful catalogue is recorded in a family history in my charter chest. The recital of them would be too horrible. It is enough to say that in yon fatal apartment incest and unnatural murder were committed. I will restore it to the solitude to which the better judgment of those who preceded me had consigned it, and never shall any one, so long as I can prevent it, be exposed to a repetition of the supernatural horrors which could shake such courage as yours. Thus the friends, who had met with such glee, parted in a very different mood, Lord Woodville to command the tapestry chamber to be unmantled, and the door built up, and General Brown to seek in some less beautiful country, and with some less dignified friend, forgetfulness of the painful night which he had passed in Woodville Castle. End of the Tapestry Chamber Death of the Laird's Jock By Sir Walter Scott The manner in which this trifle was introduced at the time to Mr. F. M. Reynolds, editor of The Keepsake of 1828, leaves no occasion for a preface. August 1831 To the editor of The Keepsake You have asked me, sir, to point out a subject for the pencil, and I feel the difficulty of complying with your request, although I am not certainly unaccustomed to literary composition or a total stranger to the stores of history and tradition, which afford the best copies for the painter's art. But although Sicket Picture Posis is an ancient and undisputed axiom, although poetry and painting both address themselves to the same object of exciting the human imagination, by presenting to it pleasing or sublime images of ideal scenes, yet the one conveying itself through the ears to the understanding, and the other applying itself only to the eyes. The subjects which are best suited to the bard or tale-teller are often totally unfit for painting, where the artist must present in a single glance all that his art has power to tell us. The artist can neither recapitulate the past nor intimate the future. The single now is all which he can present, and hence, unquestionably, many subjects which delight us in poetry or in narrative, whether real or fictitious, cannot with advantage be transferred to the canvas. Being in some degree aware of these difficulties, though doubtless unacquainted both with their extent and the means by which they may be modified or surmounted, I have, nevertheless, ventured to draw up the following traditional narrative as a story in which, when the general details are known, the interest is so much concentrated in one strong moment of agonizing passion, that it can be understood and sympathized with at a single glance. I therefore presume that it may be acceptable as a hint to someone among the numerous artists who have of late years distinguished themselves as rearing up and supporting the British school. Enough has been said and sung about to render the habits of the tribes who inhabited it before the union of England and Scotland familiar to most of your readers. The rougher and sterner features of their character were softened by their attachment to the fine arts, from which has arisen the saying that on the frontiers every dale had its battle and every river its song. A rude species of chivalry was in constant use, 
and single combats were practiced as the amusement of the few intervals of truce which suspended the exercise of war. The inveteracy of this custom may be inferred from the following incident. Bernard Gilpin, the Apostle of the North, the first who undertook to preach the Protestant doctrines to the Borderdale's men, was surprised, on entering one of their churches, to see a gauntlet or mail glove hanging above the altar. Upon inquiring, the meaning of a symbol so indecorous being displayed in that sacred place, he was informed by the clerk that the glove was that of a famous swordsman, who hung it there as an emblem of a general challenge and gauge of battle to any who should dare to take the fatal token down. Reach it to me, said the reverend churchman. The clerk and the sexton equally declined the perilous office, and the good Bernard Gilpin was obliged to remove the glove with his own hands, desiring those who were present to inform the champion that he, and no other, had possessed himself of the gauge of defiance. But the champion was as much ashamed to face Bernard Gilpin as the officials of the church had been to displace his pledge of combat. The date of the following story is about the latter years of Queen Elizabeth's reign, and the events took place in Liddysdale, a hilly and pastoral district of Roxburghshire, which, on a part of its boundary, is divided from England only by a small river. During the good old times of rugging and riving, that is, tugging and tearing, under which term the disorderly doings of the warlike age are affectionately remembered, this valley was principally cultivated by the sept or clan of the Armstrongs. The chief of this warlike race was the Laird of Mangerton. At the period of which I speak, the estate of Mangerton, with the power and dignity of chief, was possessed by John Armstrong, a man of great size, strength, and courage. While his father was alive, he was distinguished from others of his clan who bore the same name, by the epithet of the Laird's Jock, that is to say, the Laird's son Jock, or Jack. This name he distinguished by so many bold and desperate achievements, that he retained it even after his father's death, and is mentioned under it both in authentic records and in tradition. Some of his feats are recorded in the minstrelsy of the Scottish border, and others are mentioned in contemporary chronicles. At the species of singular combat which we have described the Laird's Jock was unrivaled, and no champion of Cumberland, Westmoreland, or Northumberland could endure the sway of the huge two-handed sword which he wielded, and which few others could even lift. This awful sword, as the common people term it, was as dear to him as Durandana or Fushberta to their respective masters, and was nearly as formidable to his enemies as those renowned falchions proved to the foes of Christendom. The weapon had been bequeathed to him by a celebrated English outlaw named Hobby Noble, who, having committed some deed for which he was in danger from justice, fled to Liddysdale, and became a follower, or rather a brother-in-arms, to the renowned Laird's Jock, till, venturing into England with a small escort, a faithless guide, and with a light single-handed sword instead of his ponderous brand, Hobby Noble, attacked by superior numbers, was made prisoner and executed. With this weapon, and by means of his own strength and address, the Laird's Jock maintained the reputation of the best swordsman on the border side, and defeated or slew many who ventured to dispute with him the formidable title. But years pass on with the strong and the brave as with the feeble and the timid. In process of time the Laird's Jock grew incapable of wielding his weapons, and finally of all active exertion, even of the most ordinary kind. The disabled champion became at length totally bettered in, and entirely dependent for his comfort on the pious duties of an only daughter, his perpetual attendant and companion. 
Besides this dutiful child, the laird's jock had an only son, upon whom devolved the perilous task of leading the clan to battle, and maintaining the warlike renown of his native country, which was now disputed by the English upon many occasions. The young Armstrong was active, brave, and strong, and brought home from dangerous adventures many tokens of decided success. Still, the ancient chief conceived, as it would seem, that his son was scarce yet entitled by age and experience to be entrusted with the two-handed sword, by the use of which he had himself been so dreadfully distinguished. At length an English champion, one of the name of Foster, if I rightly recollect, had the audacity to send a challenge to the best swordsman in Liddysdale, and young Armstrong, burning for chivalrous distinction, accepted the challenge. The heart of the disabled old man swelled with joy when he heard that the challenge was passed and accepted, and the meeting fixed at a neutral spot, used as the place of rencontre upon such occasions, and which he himself had distinguished by numerous victories. He exulted so much in the conquest which he anticipated, that, to nerve his son to still bolder exertions, he conferred upon him, as champion of his clan and province, the celebrated weapon which he had hitherto retained in his own custody. This was not all. When the day of combat arrived, the laird's jock, in spite of his daughter's affectionate remonstrances, determined, though he had not left his bed for two years, to be a personal witness of the duel. His will was still a law to his people, who bore him on their shoulders, wrapped in plaids and blankets, to the spot where the combat was to take place, and seated him on a fragment of rock, which is still called the laird's jock stone. There he remained with eyes fixed on the lists or barrier within which the champions were about to meet. His daughter, having done all she could for his accommodation, stood motionless beside him, divided between anxiety for his health and for the event of the combat to her beloved brother. Ere yet the fight began, the old men gazed on their chief, now seen for the first time after several years, and sadly compared his altered features and wasted frame with the paragon of strength and manly beauty which they once remembered. The young men gazed on his large form and powerful make as upon some antediluvian giant who had survived the destruction of the flood. But the sound of the trumpets on both sides recalled the attention of every one to the lists, surrounded as they were by numbers of both nations eager to witness the event of the day. The combatants met in the lists. It is needless to describe the struggle. The Scottish champion fell. Foster, placing his foot on his antagonist, seized on the redoubt sword so precious in the eyes of its aged owner, and brandished it over his head as a trophy of his conquest. The English shouted in triumph. But the despairing cry of the aged champion, who saw his country dishonored, and his sword, long the terror of their race, in the possession of an Englishman, was heard high above the acclamations of victory. He seemed for an instant animated by all his wonted power, for he started from the rock on which he sat, and while the garments with which he had been invested fell from his wasted frame, and showed the ruins of his strength, he tossed his arms wildly to heaven, and uttered a cry of indignation, horror, and despair, which, tradition says, was heard to a preternatural distance, and resembled the cry of a dying lion more than a human sound. His friends received him in their arms as he sank utterly exhausted by the effort, and bore him back to his castle in mute sorrow, while his daughter at once wept for her brother, and endeavored to mitigate and soothe the despair of her father. But this was impossible. The old man's only tie to life was rent rudely asunder, and his heart had broken with it. The death of his son had no part in his sorrow.
If he thought of him at all, it was as the degenerate boy through whom the honor of his country and clan had been lost, and he died in the course of three days, never even mentioning his name, but pouring out unintermitted lamentations for the loss of his noble sword. I conceive that the moment when the disabled chief was roused into a last exertion by the agony of the moment is favorable to the object of a painter. He might obtain the full advantage of contrasting the form of the rugged old man, in the extremity of furious despair, with the softness and beauty of the female form. The fatal field might be thrown into perspective, so as to give full effect to these two principal figures, and with the single explanation that the piece represented a soldier beholding his son slain and the honor of his country lost, the picture would be sufficiently intelligible at the first glance. If it was thought necessary to show more clearly the nature of the conflict, it might be indicated by the pennon of St. George being displayed at one end of the lists, and that of St. Andrew at the other. I remain, sir, your obedient servant, the author of Waverley.